Hello, beautiful Soul Confessions listeners, and welcome back to episode four, Trying Times, with me, Tara Lee. Last episode, we ended with a family tragedy. Unfortunately, there are many families who are touched with such untimely loss. As I continue to tell my story, it's a discovery and reflection piece of all the major events that have shaped the person I am today and the things that triggered me to get to a point of career burnout. This is my journal that is helping me understand what took me to this impossible place. What things do I need to understand and change in my path moving forward? What boundaries do I need? What can I learn from this event? As I write, I am noticing a theme that keeps reoccurring. It's the relationship with my father. The teasing, the criticism, the absence of love and support led me down a path of overcompensating in many ways. This is the darkness I am bringing into the light. I am stepping out of the shadow cast by his behaviour. His words that always told my being that I was not good enough and I was not worthy. I am now shedding that part of me. Before I start, I would like to take a moment to acknowledge that at times recollections between individuals of events can and do vary. This is for many reasons, including fading memories or different interpretations taken away from the same event. These stories are not investigative pieces, rather they are about the impression that the event made. The story is based on my recollection of events, honest opinion and how things impacted me. The story is also at times based on other individuals or family members' recollection of events and honest opinions. As the name of the podcast suggests, Soul Confessions, there will be some personal and at times difficult subjects raised. This episode contains themes of sexual abuse and self-harm. If at any time you are triggered by any of the stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, 1800RESPECT can be contacted on 1800 737 732 for sexual violence or Lifeline can be contacted on 13 11 14 for self-harm support. This next part of my story deals with some particularly sensitive subjects. It might also be difficult for some listeners to hear. It involves themes about children and family breakdown. My family's eyes have been exposed to some of the darker places of humanity. Sexual crimes against children and minors by those trusted with their care. I have learned these crimes are frequent and the signs can be so subtle they are nearly indetectable. It's so confronting and unpleasant that some of us simply can't grapple with the reality. Denying reality is how some people close to the crime can choose to cope. When I first heard the rumour that a family member was accused of sexual crimes against a minor, my mind raced in opposite directions. And for a brief moment, I had opposing voices on each shoulder. One of the voices said 
these things didn't happen in our family. This was the part of me that could not cope with the potential reality the family was facing. It also represented the shame I felt attached to being one of those families. The voice on my other shoulder was that of my conscience, the voice that screamed on behalf of all children and minors. This voice was the loudest. It searched for more information and quickly closed in to protect my immediate family unit, in particular, my daughter. It's a situation I never thought we would be in as a family. It tested the strength of our values to the very limit. The values held strong. Our values were not all aligned. Some family relationships failed. Some grew stronger than steel. I wanted to bring this event into the light. My initial reaction was that it was to be a family secret. Then I started reading about this subject and listening to police specialist interviews on podcasts to understand more about these sorts of sexual crimes. A horror emerged. They are more frequent than I could comprehend. Then I understood my reaction of silence and shame only protects the perpetrator and does nothing to raise awareness. This did not sit well with my conscience, so here I am sharing this story. The bare bones of this situation is that the family was dealing with the accusation of rape, indecent acts and sexual abuse of a minor. The individual who was accused was my middle sister's new boyfriend and father of her baby. Her boyfriend had recently left a relationship where he fathered two children. They were boys. There was a third child living in the house, a stepdaughter. She was the victim. They all lived under the same roof for a number of years. The whole episode for our family started in late 2014 or early 2015, somewhere there. When the boyfriend was taken away in handcuffs by the police from their family home one night. My niece was a couple of months old at this stage. The basis for the arrest was unclear for a considerable time. The boyfriend had a way of answering and not answering at the same time. He had an ability to deflect and confuse. Most likely he rarely told the truth, as we were always left guessing with him. He had odd movements, employment activity and a general unreliability for doing as he would say. Something was just not right about him. But the news of the allegations was worse than I could have imagined. Sometime later, in 2017, we became aware of two of the charges against the boyfriend. We were able to know something with certainty. It had been all smoke and mirrors for the past two years. We were frustrated with the lack of transparency. Mum and my elder sister became aware there was a preliminary court hearing in the county court in Melbourne, so they attended. These were the parts discussed before a jury was called. We didn't know how many charges there were, but on this day we learned that there were at least five. Two of them were referred to in this session. 
they were four indecent acts and rape involving a minor. There was also some audio played as the legal team sorted through what was admissible. The audio included an admission to at least one of the charges. Suddenly, there was very much at stake in terms of values and protection for younger female family members. My middle sister, who was at the centre of this controversy, took the position that the victim's mother had sour grapes over his new relationship. She believed he was innocent. She believed his story. She did not want to attend the court to hear for herself what the matters were, to understand as many parts of the story as possible. Mum, my elder sister and I could not understand her position. Our thoughts went to her youngest daughter and her welfare. My last interaction with my middle sister was in mid-2017. I saw her and my niece for the last time. I visited so I could ask her about the rumours that were circulating in the family. I wanted to hear the story from her, to have a balanced view. At this stage, my niece was a little under three years old. When I left that day, I said I needed time to think and to make a decision on the way forward for her household and mine. She was sticking by her boyfriend and I needed to talk to my family, although the way forward was already clear. Our last conversation was a couple of days later by phone. I told her the decision was that her and her child were always welcome in our home, but her boyfriend was not, due to the significant charges pending. She asked, what if he is found innocent? I said we would cross that bridge at the appropriate time. The risk that he could be guilty was enough to need to protect my family and any visitors we would coincidentally have in the home. She texted me shortly after the phone call to tell me that if I could not invite her whole family, then none of them would attend. I respected her response, despite not understanding her logic for standing by him. This event was the catalyst for the division of the family to this day. Mum, my elder sister and I had and still have the view that this behaviour is not in line with our values and is not welcome in our family or our social circles. We believe we must protect our family unit and be the strong example that is set for our daughters. It is a zero tolerance message to the men who partner our daughters. My middle sister held the view that she knew her boyfriend and did not believe that he was guilty of such acts. She wanted to keep her family together. She felt the mother of the victim and ex-girlfriend had concocted an elaborate plot to derail the new relationship. The breakdown in the relationship between my middle sister and I also extended to my mother and elder sister. Dad remained the go-between with all the daughters. He supported my middle sister through the strain of waiting the outcome of those significant charges and eventual conviction and incarceration. Dad spoke to everyone except Mum. They had barely spoken for decades due to the divorce. My middle sister refused to have further contact with Mum, my elder sister or me, somewhere between the charges being known and the trial commencing.
Mum has been persistent in attempting to maintain a relationship and contact with her daughter and granddaughter. She has been hurt to the deepest level with this family division. Her maternal bond with each of her children is within her DNA and is near impossible to break. There were many toxic events for her up until late 2022. It became apparent she has needed to protect her own mental health and let go of this toxic relationship with her child. She has found a level of peace within herself that this relationship is now in the past. Mum's story is part of the next series of this podcast where we will cover this hurt. Writing this will be a healing journey for Mum, as it has been for me. Much more of the detail is within Mum's story. We also plan to write to her granddaughter, my niece, so that as the years pass, Mum can rest knowing her message is in the world for her grown-up granddaughter. I will keep you posted with the progress of this story on the show's Instagram page. As mentioned earlier, the charges and the court case brought out our family's strengths and also weaknesses. It tested our values. The next part is about how this event exposed some questionable behaviour from my father. I recall a conversation either just after the charges became known or just after the conviction. They were about 12 months apart. Dad was in my home with several family members. Inevitably, the discussion went to the subject of the charges or convicted acts. What my father said at the time, I still struggle to comprehend. His comments watered down the severity of the charges. They were along the lines of, there is rape and then there's rape. His comments referred to the type of penetration and level of violence coupled with the act. There were also comments, or maybe it was an undertone, that he did not think the boyfriend did anything bad enough to warrant jail time. Wow, he was walking on very precarious ground now. I could not believe my ears. Was I hearing support and defence for the boyfriend? As if these comments were not enough, the conversation progressed to our reliance on the verdict of the judicial system. Dad was watering down the ability of the legal system to produce an accurate verdict. How do we really know what happened? There's always a chance he could be convicted when he's innocent. Academically, this is true. The judicial system is not without flaw. However, it is not designed to act in this way. We must rely on and accept the outcomes and process. In mid-2018, the trial was held. Evidence was provided by the victim in a closed court. This means that only several people were in attendance in addition to the jury, so the judge, lawyers and accused from what I understand. The victim attended via video link due to her trauma. This also protected her from having to see the accused again. The accused did not provide evidence to defend himself. One reason this can occur is that the accused is not a credible witness to support their own case. Whatever the reason, it is strange that you would not choose to have your say if you were innocent. 
Maybe there are reasons for this that I do not understand. At the end of about two weeks of court time, the verdict was handed down. Guilty on all charges, which included various counts of rape, sexual assault and indecent acts. The jury took about a day. He was immediately taken into custody from the dock while awaiting sentencing. As mentioned, the court was closed while evidence was given. So we only know snippets of the information. From the trial discussion, when the public was allowed to be present, we estimate the victim was between 13 and 17 years old when the crimes were committed. The night the verdict was handed down, sparks flew across the airwaves between mum and dad. They were unable to come together and lead the family through this storm. They had passionately opposed views. They screamed at each other. They used foul language. They hung up on each other. On the odd occasion that they've spoken since, the conversations have ended in the same way. The jury's verdict was also our family's verdict. The family had such bitter blood by this point and there was no coming back. We were so damaged and so divided. We had so many ugly moments by this stage. The accusation and then confirmation that we had a sex offender in the family brought about the strength and also the weakness amongst us. The very hurtful outcome of this part of our history is that there is a beloved granddaughter and niece that is growing up without knowing her extended family. A family that loves her and mourns the years we are losing. My mother, her grandmother, feels the pain so deeply. As she ages, the window of time to share her special love slowly closes. This tears at her heart. It has scarred her soul. We will delve into that part of the story in another episode. Going back to some of my father's comments mentioned earlier, I saw him maybe only once or twice after the day of the comments where he watered down the charge of rape and reliance on our legal system. The comments he made left me again wondering who this man was. What are his values? How can he water down the severity of the situation and support the ongoing relationship of my middle sister and her boyfriend? while not being able to congratulate me and my husband on our wedding day. Our wedding day was in late 2017, and I will tell you that story in a moment. My husband had never done anything to hurt me. He had only ever provided love, support, and protection to me and our daughter. He had proved his worth over more than 20 years. The last times I saw my father, I went without my husband. He could not sit and listen to any more of his comments nor witness any more of his poor behaviour. He was done. It was in early 2019. I was with my then 22-year-old daughter. This was the last time I saw my father. After so many years of enduring him, I was emotionally exhausted by him. On top of all of the history, when the three of us were out to dinner, he dropped a bomb he announced he was planning to marry a 32-year-old Cambodian woman. He was then 75. For anyone that knows Cambodian law, 
this is illegal for exploitation reasons. The union was to be an unofficial one. I hear you say, hang on a minute, the artist just died in the last episode and now he's getting married to someone else? There has been about 15 years or so that has passed. I will fill in the gaps since the death of the artist shortly. Yes, it took me by surprise too. No lead up, just boom, the announcement. I was aware of Dad's visits to Cambodia. As he had previously explained, he was helping children in orphanages for several months a year. Along the way, this must have become sort of sponsoring a family. He had been explicit that there was no romantic connection when he had mentioned it. Clearly, I had missed a few memos. I no longer heard about Dad helping children in orphanages. Was that a cover story all along? He now only spoke about the more salacious aspects of his visits. Was it possible he was visiting for sex? Is that the bottom line? There are so many inconsistencies. Who knows what the truth is? Am I being too harsh? At that final dinner, Dad shared details about the physical relationship with the 32-year-old that a daughter and granddaughter need not hear. My daughter and I were both uncomfortable. Some things he said that night did not make sense. He was nervous when questioned. It was like he could not keep track of what his story was. I knew he could fabricate his own reality. It sounded like this was happening again. I also asked if the union was based on mutual attraction or was there an element of him buying his own affections. He openly admitted that he knew she was not attracted to him and that it would cost him financially. He seemed to have his eyes wide open and be happy for the mutual exploitation to occur. That night, Dad left me on the side of the road with my daughter and never looked back. I was clearly impacted by the conversation. I expressed that. He never checked in on me to see how I was digesting the news. It was not a surprise though, as I have accepted, he does not have the emotional capacity to understand that I even had a reaction. His behaviour has become more absurd over time and his moral compass seems to have gone in the wrong direction. At this point, I was also done. I could no longer do the mental gymnastics. Now, as mentioned earlier, there is a gap in the story about Dad's romantic interests since the artist passed at the end of the last episode. I feel that this was an event that Dad never recovered from. I sometimes wonder what he would be like if they had worked through her illness. Does his behaviour stem from the unresolved hurt of her passing? The years after her death saw his life choices decline. That's my opinion anyway. Dad could be very difficult company. He could also be great company. Sadly, the time I spent with him was generally the former. At gatherings, my friends gave him a wide berth. He argued, rarely listened, and vigorously communicated unpopular social views. He was void of emotional intelligence. We don't always have to agree, but we do need to be considerate of how our behaviour impacts others. It seemed that he enjoyed arguments more than laughter, 
he would arrive at gatherings with pre-prepared topics of contention and strong opinions. Don't get me wrong, thought-provoking topics can bring about positive outcomes, just not with Dad. Dad had various romantic interests to fill the space left by the artist. From what I know, many of them were from visits to Southeast Asia. The last time I saw him, he told me he was attempting to bring his fourth family to Australia. This was his intended Cambodian wife, the 32-year-old, and her children. I was only aware of one other family. They came from the Philippines. I did meet them and know them for several years before the relationship ended. Who were the two others? Did he lose count or were there things I never knew? With the journey we've been on so far in this story, there is a clear pattern around my father. It's confronting to need to place a boundary on a parent like this. We are wired to have this unconditional connection. Untangling myself has taken a lot of work. My husband never placed demands on me of what I should and should not do. Several years ago, when I laid the pieces of this story together, the toxicity of this relationship became quite clear. I have needed to prioritise and protect that which is sacred in my life, that which nurtures my well-being. Limiting my interactions with Dad has resulted in an improvement in my mental health and an ability not to be hurt by things that I hear on the grapevine. I've let the strings attached to this parental relationship go. They are flying in the wind. They are floating out of sight. He can't hurt me anymore. Those wounds are finally healing. So far in this episode, we've dealt with some heavy subject matters. So I think it's time to change pace for a moment, as I have just heard you say, so what happened on the wedding day? Let me fill you in. Not to live in the shadow of the family drama of mid-2017, we did find moments of joy later in the year. It was the year that my husband and I got married. After about 22 years, we decided it was time. We had been engaged for many of those years, but with all of the busyness of life, there had never been time to make plans. There was always another priority. Perhaps it's deeply rooted to where I found myself in episode two, not daring to dream of a wedding or a family. The echo in my mind, or perhaps in my soul, that I did not deserve this joy. I had never visualised a wedding. The painfully shy child also did not want the attention that finds a bride on a wedding day. I still carried parts of my teenage emotional self into my 40s. This trauma, coupled with my aversion to stress, did not fare well for planning an event of scale. There are various reasons for having a very low-key surprise wedding. It took about four to five weeks to organise. We were both relaxed and enjoyed the day. We did it our way. So different, simple and stress-free. It was perfect. We eloped in our own home. Our daughter and one of her primary school friends were our witnesses. A celebrant and photographer were the only other people there. 
To break the news to our immediate family, we invited them all to our house for dinner. It was under false pretenses. A run-of-the-mill Sunday night family dinner. Everyone was told not to bring anything, as I had booked a big table at our favourite local restaurant. As 5pm approached, the first guests arrived at the house. We opened the door in our wedding dresses and suit. My elder sister was the first one in the door, carrying a cooler bag of food for dinner, even though I had asked her not to bring anything. She looked me up and down in my white off-the-shoulder dress, looked at hubby, went red and cried. No words were said. The tears expressed her excitement and joy. Mum then approached, hit repeat. No words, just tears, joy, hugs. The partners got a few more words out along the lines of, wow, congratulations, it's about time. Hubby's side of the family arrived. Hugs, kisses, excitement, photos. We all had champagne. My other niece and her now husband jumped in the car from Gippsland, which is about a two and a half hour drive away. They were with us in the restaurant by about 7.30. So excited they were by the news. My niece loves love, loves weddings, and oh yes, she loves us too. There was one family member who had a funny way of expressing joy. Or maybe it was not joy at all. By this stage of my story, you might guess that Dad managed again to say and do things in stark contrast to the celebrations. Things that left us raising one eyebrow. To this day, he has not expressed his happiness about our marriage. He was the last to arrive and he walked into a buzzing household. He was quite late. It was nearly time to leave for the restaurant when he arrived. I was in a white dress, hubby was in a suit and our daughter was in a bridesmaid's dress. The marriage certificate and vows were on the table. You did not need to be Einstein to work out what was going on. Dad did not say hello to me for some time. I know this as I was waiting for the greeting and watching him for the moment of surprise when the wedding registered in his mind. I saw him walk around the edges of the area we were gathered in. It seemed he was avoiding saying hello. He did not acknowledge the wedding. He was silent. I was aware of the impact Dad could have on me and determined not to have this day tarnished by his behaviour. So I turned my attention elsewhere. Then at the dinner table that night, my stepdad started a toast to go around the table. Nothing formal, just a couple of words of congratulations, off the cuff, and a cheers of our glasses. Halfway around the table, it was dad's turn. In the middle of the festivities, we were waiting for his couple of words. They were... I decline. The weight in the air became palpable. Thank goodness for my new father-in-law, who broke the silence and moved the attention on. I did not dwell on the significance of those two words at the time. It was some months later that I pieced together several events over the years and saw the character of my father quite clearly. My forgiving heart could not take more. While the drama of my personal life was playing out and taking so much of my attention, I was able to function professionally at an executive level. 
No one knew the extent of the issues I was facing in my personal life for some time. I had so much baggage, most of which was normalised in my mind. Although in saying this, parts of the story were so out of the ordinary that even I knew they were not normal. To help me cope, I eventually told a couple of colleagues parts of my story. It helped keep me sane. For those few people who had a brief look into my life, they cringed at what they heard. They did not understand how I held it together. Sometimes this was surprising for me to hear. It also got me thinking about my journey. What type of person would you expect if you knew my story? In the corporate world, I was often described as highly trusted, has a high level of business knowledge, supportive, caring, great problem solver, and the list goes on. Hearing these positive views could bring on a reasonable bout of imposter syndrome. Deep within my childhood programming, my core belief was that I was not good enough and also not worthy. That coupled with my desire to have nice things and a better standard of living led me to be a workaholic and perfectionist, forever overcompensating. I also became a master of having a game face, putting my own woes aside to support and lead others. I constantly worked at quarantining my history, my trauma, my self-doubt and my underlying lack of confidence. My work world was also an escape from my real world. I did not have to think about the drama and my relationships were extremely positive. It was a great counterbalance. Until it wasn't. The emotional load in both areas of my life became heavy. The pandemic years created seismic disruption. Challenges upon challenges were served up. Then this level of disruption became the new normal. People were stretched so thin. People got tired. Leave was difficult to take. Many industries were impacted. It seemed everyone was working harder for a reduced result. The collective batteries were draining. My batteries were draining. My mental health and well-being were suffering. I failed to see the warning signs. All the stop signs in front of me. I'm not really sure when the burnout started. Looking back over my story, there have been significant events that have caused stress to be a constant. It seemed to creep up silently, and then by mid-2022, I recall being so overwhelmed I could not put words to how I felt. I just wanted to get through to Christmas for a break. By the end of the year, the ignored warning signs progressed to dysfunction. My capacity to think clearly diminished. My capacity to articulate feelings into words was zero. All I do recall is that I felt like a stone, emotionless. By Christmas, the stress had a clear foothold on me. My anxiety was acute. I paid a visit to my soul sister in her rainforest retreat called home. We had not seen each other for about six to eight months and she saw me. You know when someone says, I see you? That was her. She saw me. She saw every crack in the weir wall and knew it was so close to giving way. She served up the undeniable truth of the situation. 
the truth I was unable to see through the fog in my mind. She was crystal clear. Over the few days I spent with her, she was my guardian angel. She protected me from myself. Amongst all of our conversations in those days, this observation was like a siren going off in the middle of the night. She told me all that she could see was me accelerating through every stop sign, ignoring every warning my body was giving me and heading towards a cliff at 100 kilometres an hour. I'm thankful for her and her honesty and how she turned up the pain to shake me out of the days I was in. She helped me start to unravel my emotions and take steps towards halting the spiral I found myself in. I feel that her and her husband may have saved my life over the few days I visited. They are beautiful souls and we are blessed to have them here on this earth. My symptoms are difficult to talk about. As I look at them now, they scare me and are so obvious. They are each a stop sign that I ignored and accelerated past. My brain was a fog and I just could not see clearly. Over time, the symptoms became more evident. They crept up on me and then shouted at me. Dizzy spells, chest pains, very high blood pressure, memory loss, sleeplessness, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, the inability to hold a conversation and articulate generally. I stopped driving and struggled to have conversations at work or at home. I was a space cadet. I had to take painkillers before bed as I suffered stress-related pain whenever I laid down. The internal dialogue got dark. I caught myself before I started to explore those thoughts. I was not in good shape. This was in the days before I saw my soul sister. I was sinking to the bottom of the ocean without oxygen. While seeing my soul sister, I made the decision to leave my job. I needed to be my own best friend. I needed a break to regather me, a break to recover. Burnout can take time to creep up and it's taking time to unwind. It can make a permanent impression. But I'm doing much better today. As I write this, the healing journey continues and I am happy that I am no longer speeding past stop signs. To heal, I'm moving at a slower pace and noticing the beauty within everyday life. For me, this personal disruption has been a gift. I feel as though I was not taking the time to listen to myself and take care of myself. I am blessed that I am now getting better and have the space to do the inner work. To go back over history, to lay it all out, reflect, have the emotions of grief, anger, sympathy, forgiveness, understanding. To let go of the impact of all these memories, to find the beauty in me, to find the healing. The stories included have been the more significant memories that played into my personality traits of being a people pleaser and perfectionist. Expecting myself to rise to every challenge and nail it as I became accustomed to doing. 
As I wrote, I realised I kept talking about Dad. It all starts in those early years. The drive to be successful in my career. I was always overcompensating to prove my worth and to have the things I did not have growing up. Every time I overcompensated, I was whispering to myself that I was not enough. Tears have been shed in writing this story, putting it all together, seeing the history with new clarity, all the things buried so deep within me. I have faced a fear of sharing and being judged for my story. I had the thoughts of would it be safer to protect these secrets. Then I heard my mind go to my writing in episode two about the vulnerable zone, the space where the magic of life happens. I had answered my own question. So I am here sharing my secrets, sharing my child self's pain. At the end of this part of the journey with you, that little girl who is my inner child, the one that survived so much, has permission to rest. I also have a message for her. You are so loved, so strong, so worthy, and so much more than good enough. My hope is, by sharing, it makes the world a better place. Perhaps this story can help you make changes to bring your own life path into the light, to find the strength you have within you, the strength that is always within you. The gift of this journey means I live my life differently now. I am learning to let go of personality traits that do not serve me. I am being less perfect less focused on pleasing others and am learning to protect my sacred self. I am figuring out what I want my days to look like and I remind myself that I am worthy, that I am enough, that I am being the best person I can be, that I am the only person I can be. Take me or leave me, this is me. I hope you have enjoyed listening to my story and perhaps in some way it is helping you move through any challenges you may have on your own journey. If it has, I would love to hear from you. Please drop me a note via the show's email at soulconfessionspodcast at hotmail.com. All of the details are in the show notes. This episode contains themes of sexual abuse and mental health. If at any time you are triggered by any of the stories, please reach out to your local support group. In Australia, 1800RESPECT can be contacted on 1800 737 732 for sexual violence or Lifeline can be contacted on 13 11 14 for mental health support. If you like this podcast, show your support by subscribing, following, rating, sharing or even donating via our Patreon program so that I can continue to create new episodes for you to enjoy. All of the links are in the show's notes. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to you joining me for episode 5. I'm planning on dedicating this one to yoga. It's one of my great joys in life and the very thing that grounded me through all of the trying times of this episode. 
Thanks again and bye for now.